Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, today we're back, back here in the meeting house to continue our examination of God during this Lent. As I've said the past two weeks, we have to wrestle with the nature of God in the 21st century in order to come to deeper reflection on our faith. Lent is an ideal time for deep reflection. It is what we do during the time that leads up to Easter. And I can't think of a better or more deserving topic than God. The key question before us is how to make sense of God, given our 21st century worldview. Arguments for or against God only get us so far. We must instead consider how God is relevant to our life. How does thinking about God help guide us in our life? Last week, we looked deeply at process theology. Process theology sees all of creation not as stable essences, but as a society, a collection of actual occasions. Process theology acknowledges the reality, acknowledges the reality that all is in flux and deeply interrelated. God is what provides novelty in the world. God both changes the world through each actual occasion and is changed by it. It's a fascinating perspective and one that we will return to in the weeks ahead. But today, today we take a different tack, so to speak, and we do so by looking at the work of one theologian in particular, one theologian whom I have mentioned many times in the past, Paul Tillich. Paul Tillich was a giant of 20th century theology, someone who taught at the leading academic institutions in the U.S., and who even made it onto the cover of Time magazine, back when Time magazine was the best-selling magazine around. Today, I hope to give you a sense as to why he was so popular. For some of you, this will be familiar ground. Nevertheless, I hope you will bear with me and perhaps even find something new or intriguing in what I'll say. For those of you who don't know Paul Tillich, you're in for a treat. After all, this is theology. Who doesn't like a little theology on Sunday morning? The starting point for Tillich's approach is what he calls the courage to be. At first glance, you might ask yourself, what on earth is Tillich talking about? When you think of courage, you might think about soldiers in battle, or perhaps the brave hospital workers during this coronavirus pandemic. What does courage have to do with theology, much less God? But what Tillich is talking about is the courage to be yourself, the courage it takes to affirm who you are. In Tillich's formulation, this is not one question among many. It is the question. How do you be you in an authentic, affirming way? The question is the basis of all the self-help literature you might find on Amazon. This is what we, as humans, are looking for. When we examine the question closely, we can see how much of a struggle it actually is, how hard it can be to be ourselves 
in spite of the pressures and vicissitudes of life. Let's take Brene Brown, someone whom I preached about a little while ago. Brene Brown has made her career writing about shame. She has sold millions of copies of her books, appeared on countless TV shows, and before large audiences. Brene Brown's career has been made by helping people have the courage to be, in spite of the shame we might feel. That's what she does. She teaches people about the courage to be. According to Brown, we internalize shame to a remarkable degree, all with bad consequences for our lives and our happiness. We're ashamed of how we look. We're never thin enough, pretty enough. We're ashamed of our lack of success or something we struggle with. We feel deep down that somehow we're not good enough. We learn these lessons early in childhood. I remember when I was growing up, my, my mother used to scold my sister that she did something that was not ladylike, whatever that means. My sister was not interested in the things my mother thought she should be interested in. Naturally, my sister internalized a sense of shame over this. I, I was a weird kid myself. I loved reading history and playing Legos and Dungeons and Dragons by myself. I would even play board games by myself. There was I with a Monopoly board stretched out before me in our den, and I was the top hat, the thimble, the dog, and the iron. The fact is that I didn't relate well to many of my peers at the time. Something was wrong with me, or at least it seemed that way. It doesn't matter what our sources of shame might be. They impact our, our lives in a myriad of ways. The big question as adults is how, in spite of our shame, or in spite of our guilt over something, can we have the courage to be ourselves? How do we do it? How do you do it? The courage to be is about more than dealing with internalized guilt or shame. That is an incredibly important thing. When guilt or shame become overwhelming, they can cripple us as people, destroy our relationships with others, and even lead to self-harm. But the courage to be covers even more than that. We also need the courage to be in the face of the real limitations that we encounter in life. Let's take a trivial example. A young kid loves playing basketball more than anything else. He spends all his free time practicing shots. Then he's the MVP of his league in middle school and makes the varsity basketball team as a sophomore. He dreams about playing in college or professionally. But this kid is five foot eight and his talents can only take him so far. How does he find the courage to be himself when he runs up against the real limitations of life? There are countless other examples. We live in a highly competitive society. We like to tell ourselves that if we only work harder, we'll achieve greatness and fame in whatever we choose. But that's not true. I was good at math in school, 
but I was never going to be a national math champion, no matter how hard I worked. I know people who love acting and who spent years in New York or L.A. trying to make it big in the acting world, but it didn't work out. How do they find the courage to be in spite of the limitations of fate or our talents? What about our inability to live as we know we ought to? We all do things that we know we shouldn't do. We have habits that stick with us that we wish we could break. No matter how many self-help books you buy, you're never going to be the best form of you all the time. It simply won't happen because we're human and we have human limitations. We're not perfect and never can be. How do you find the courage to be when you face the limitations on your body? As you grow older, you can't do what you used to do. You always prided yourself on being in great shape, but the march of time has made that impossible. You keep trying and keep finding yourself exhausted or injured. You develop arthritis or some other condition that makes doing what you used to do so easily next to impossible. Perhaps you can't remember things like you used to. Or maybe you can't go out and party with your friends like you used to. Or in the worst case, you have a chronic illness like cancer that is bringing death closer day by day. How do you find the courage to be? Do you see why this is such an important question, the central question of living? In spite of all that life throws at us, in spite of all the ambiguities of life, the struggles, the failing to live up to what we should be, how do we have the courage to be ourselves authentically and fully? Paul Tillich wrote that in different ages, different threats to our being are more significant than others on a societal level. Humans have experienced different anxieties more acutely at certain times than at others. In a time before modern medicine, or in a time of great national distress like war, the question of death and finitude were foremost in people's minds. We're lucky though. Even though we do face various limitations, we have a far, far more secure existence than people did in other ages. There was a time when every parent could expect to lose at least one, if not multiple children before they reached adulthood. That was a fact of life. There was a time when the life expectancy was under 50 years old. That changes the predominant source of anxiety in a society. Back in the Middle Ages, Western European society was obsessed with guilt. Every image in cathedrals and churches reminded people of hell. The Roman Catholic Church developed detailed books on every possible variety of sin and then its expected penance. You could see it in medieval art in all its forms. And today, while finitude and guilt are still factors in our lives, they're not nearly as prevalent as they once were. Brene Brown might talk about the power of shame, but that power was far greater in an earlier time than it is now. 
There were all sorts of expected moral standards of the past that no longer have the power to shame as they once did. Now, Paul Tillich argued that the chief source of anxiety in today's society stems from meaninglessness. What gives life its meaning? In the 19th century, you could count on a belief in God or any other of a variety of things that gave life meaning. But today, with the breakdown of the family, of communities of all sorts, of received truths, where do we derive meaning in life? This fertility is the core of, of anxiety in society today. We need meaning. We need to feel like our life matters in some significant way. Without meaning, we are lost. We lose motivation to act. Lack of meaning can lead to depression or even despair. In order to find meaning in today's world, we often turn to the collective. We discover meaning by being a part of something greater than ourselves. But that can be deeply destructive in itself. Look at the resistance from some corners of American society to question or even mention the sins of America. These people find meaning through their patriotism. Being American, being in the greatest country in the world, provides meaning. Therefore, you can't question it. To critique America is to, is to undermine the meaning in life that comes from being American. These efforts to lionize America can easily become demonic by giving excuse to immoral behavior either at home or abroad. Look at the phenomenon of Trumpism in America. There certainly are reasons to support policies on the American right, and there are plenty of clear-eyed supporters of the former president. But the fanaticism with which some people follow Donald Trump comes from a search for meaning. Because meaning, existential meaning, is derived from Donald Trump, you cannot criticize him. President Trump created a lie that he actually won the election. When his accusations were brought before courts of law, they were shown to be without merit, again and again and again. But millions cannot bring themselves to believe that. If they do, they'll lose a source of meaning. Look what happened to the QAnon conspiracy theorists after the failed January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol. They felt betrayed, lost, adrift, without meaning. The same phenomenon also happens on the American left. It's what Paul Tillich calls democratic conformism. Certain views are lifted up as being sacrosanct, and to question them leads to derision or even people losing their jobs. Think of so-called cancel culture. I understand the good motivations that lie behind much of cancel culture. We need to call out sexual predators, racism, homophobia, and xenophobia. But when that same culture stifles free speech or any opposing viewpoints, it becomes demonic. Tillich would say that this form of de democratic conformism stems from a search for meaning. We attach our identity, our identity to a particular way of thinking, 
and then resist any challenge to that. If you challenge it, you get ostracized. We find meaning not just through attaching ourselves to a collective mindset. There are also individual attempts to try and find that courage to be. Look at those who worship the accumulation of possessions. I know people who judge their self-worth, their meaning in life, based on their wardrobe of various designers. The type of car you drive, restaurants you frequent, vacation spots you visit give your life meaning. But do they? What happens when they're gone? Or what happens when they don't actually bring the meaning or joy to your life that you thought they would? How do you have the courage to be? This is where God comes into the picture for Paul Tillich. If we are going to find the courage to be, the courage to be ourself in the midst of life's struggles and ambiguities, we must ground that courage in something. There must be that something that gives us the strength to be ourselves and to thrive in life in spite of life's hardships. Where can we find the strength to be ourselves when we're racked by guilt or shame? We can find that strength in the company of those who know us and love us. That is crucial. But ultimately, there must be something else. We can't be fully dependent on others. There must be something that tells you, you are enough. You are valid. You are loved. When you are struggling with limitations, the limitations of your innate skills, the limitations of fate, the limitations of growing older, or the fear of death, where can you look to find the courage to be yourself? Again, friends, family, and community can be very helpful here. But there must be something else. Something else that affirms that you are good as you are. You don't need to be a professional basketball player or a famous actor or a CEO. In spite of physical limitations or a devastating diagnosis, you are enough. That word, that reaffirmation, must come from somewhere. When you're searching for meaning in life, meaning when the things that you thought were important, like money, like a political figure, like a particular group, turn out to be illusions. You need to find that meaning somewhere. You need the courage to go ahead with life, to try new things, to meet new people. You need to know, you need to feel from somewhere that your life has meaning and value intrinsically. This, this for Paul Tillich is how we know God. We don't know God by some philosophical proof. We know God because we meet God, the living God, in the midst of the ambiguities and difficulties of life. What is God? God is being itself. God is the very strength and ground of being, of all that is. How do we come to know God? According to Paul Tillich, we come to know God in two primary ways. 
The first way we know God is through the mystical path. We know God when we have those moments of unity, of oneness with that which is being itself. There are certain great mystics who have shown us this path to God. While we may not have the same degree of experience that they do, we can get a glimpse of it. I'm sure you've had those experiences where you feel your own ego, at least for a moment, dissolved into something greater than yourself, that which is eternal, transcendent, and the very structure of being. These experiences happen in worship, in prayer, in communion with nature. When it does happen, when you can feel that mystical connection with God, you are at peace with yourself and the world. The other way we come to know God is through personal encounters with God. These are moments when you feel God speaking to us directly in some sort of way. We feel affirmed in our very center by God's presence. We come to know that God knows us personally and intimately. These moments can come in worship or when talking with another person or reading something enlightening. It also comes from an encounter with Jesus, whom Christians claim is the Christ, the one person who conquered life's ambiguities and had the courage to be. It is through these two ways of knowing God, the mystical and the personal, that we come to know ourselves and discover what the courage to be means for us. Our reading for this morning from Psalm 22 captures this courage to be as well as any other text. Famously, Psalm 22 opens with the line, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the words that Jesus uttered from the cross in the moment of his despair. It's a place that we all have known at some point or another. That point when we are confronted by our limitations, our guilt, our fear, the meaninglessness of life. Like the psalmist, we ask, where is God? But the psalmist has his own personal experience of God. He remembers that God is holy. He can recall the deeds of God in his life when he knew being itself. This reaffirmation of God leads the psalmist to proclaim the words that we have for this morning. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. In life, that is how God works. God does not remove the obstacles from our life, but God gives us the courage to be ourselves in spite of what life has thrown at us. So what can we say about this God of Paul Tillich? God here is most definitely not a being alongside other beings. God is not something you can put into a test tube and run experiments on. God is being itself, the very ground of being. God does not intercede to change the events of the world like some divine superhuman. But God does give us the strength to live and to live well. God gives us the courage to be ourselves, to love others, to feel wholeness and acceptance. 
The purpose of prayer or worship is not to change God's mind or to implore for a miracle to happen. Prayer helps us to meet both the mystical and personal dimensions of God. In those meetings with God, we find true purpose, meaning, and support. That is the God of Paul Tillich and the other Christian existentialists. So now we have these two different approaches to God, one through process theology and the other through Christian existentialism. They both take science and philosophy seriously. They are both rational. Does one framework speak to you more than the other? Next week, we will continue our Lenten theological journey. We'll continue along this path of discovery. And I do hope in the midst of it, you not only find frameworks for God that help you to believe, but also something that can deepen your experience of the divine in the process. We are on a journey, but we don't go it alone. We go with God.